Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Mold, a podcast from the National Precast Concrete Association. Tune in every month as we dig into a different aspect of the precast concrete industry. I'm your host, Joe Frollo, Director of Communications and Public Affairs at NPCA. Today, we're going to be talking about mixed design efficiencies and how to achieve them. We're going to start by talking with Greg Roach of Ganey's Concrete Products. Later in the show, we'll hear from NPCA's Daryl Burns alongside Paul Ramsberg of Sika Corporation. These two engineers will take a deeper dive into the subject and explore more ways precast concrete facilities are getting their mixed designs to maximum efficiency. Let's get started. Hello, this is Breaking the Mold, and I'm NPCA Director of Communications Joe Frollo here today with Greg Roach of Ganey's. And we're going to be talking a little bit about mixed design efficiency. Greg, thanks a lot for being with us here today. Well, Joe, thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure to, to participate in this. We're looking forward to talking a little bit about breaking the mold this afternoon. Fantastic. So when you're looking at mixed design efficiencies, some people approach it by using fewer materials and lowering costs. Others seek to get more consistent concrete properties. What's been your general approach to mixed design there at Ganey's? Well, thank you, Joe. You know, I came from the supply side in the industry. I worked for one of the larger admission companies in the world. So very proud of that. And so I came here with lots of mixed design experience and expertise. But I quickly realized that that to me, I have, I have lots of sayings at my age. One of them is the cheapest thing we put in our product is concrete. Between the steel, the labor, head, the, the, labor, the overhead, uh, those are all very expensive components. So trying to minimize cost by taking cost out of a mixed design seems like a losing proposition, certainly for us here at Ganey's, because if you do that and you push the mix to make it more difficult for your workers to use, maybe you have to throw a batch out every now and then, any, any minor savings are thrown away with anything that goes wrong with giving good, reliable concrete to the, to the guys who have to use it on the shop floor, or have it being a great looking product that meets all the engineering properties. So for us, it makes sense to not try and cut cost out of a mix, but work very hard to get the efficiency in cycle time as we make it and consistency. So day in and day out, minor variations between the materials, whatever temperature or climate conditions you've got going on, you still get a great reliable mix that's easy for people to use that meets all the properties that the mix was intended to get. So, Greg, you mentioned cycle times, which which are also called mixed times in, in some shops. Talk to me about how precious those minutes, those seconds are when you're talking about a work day and trying to, to be the most efficient with, with your mixes and with your workers. Well, thank you. Um, first of all, I was deliberate by saying cycle times as opposed to mixed times, because I want to incorporate in, in the term cycle time, the time to get all the materials delivered to the mixer, which is an important thing on getting your cycle time down. And then once it hits the mixer, what's the total time mixing before you can deliver it down to the guys on the shop floor? So here at Ganey's, we, we've been fortunate to have meteoric growth. And so early on, as I looked at our, our production efficiency, there were three major categories. You come in in the morning, you break material out of the molds, you get it over into storage. You set up the mold, and then as an afterthought, at the end of the day, oh, we'll have a half hour and we'll fill all the forms. Well, modern day gainies, we start batching as early as nine o'clock in the morning, and we're batching throughout the day. There's one batch plant operator, 35, 40 people out on the shop floor waiting on concrete. 
So if you want to talk about improving the bottom line, I always strive to have the batch plant operator waiting for the guys on the floor and not the guys on the floor waiting on the batch plant. So when it comes to making adjustments to, to the batch plant equipment, that can get really complex. Um, there's, there's a lot of things can go into it. What, what's your approach there at Gainey's? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty simple thing that I just put it in my head. And I said, well, I really, um, this happened, I don't know, uh, maybe close to 10 years ago. We put in a new batch plant computer. And so there's lots involved with doing that. You have to send signals back from all the batch plant equipment. And then you have standard factory settings within that computer. Then, then operate it and automate your, 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 your batch plant and then your mixer. So as we did that and I turned it online, it was great. But I noticed that there were certain things we were waiting on that I thought were not necessary. So it was as simple as this. What is the biggest holdup in cycle time for us to batch quicker? And initially that was water delivery. So I took a look at our water delivery system. We had a four inch water main coming off the, uh, the highway that comes along Ganey's. Inexplicably, it was reduced down to a three quarter inch backflow preventer, choking it came across the yard in a two inch force main, 16 feet up and then into another three quarter inch flow meter and then into the Christmas tree that delivered all the admixtures into the plant. So I saw multiple choking points and I set a goal. I wanted to go from 30 gallons a minute up to 90 gallons a minute. So changed out the backflow preventer, changed out the, uh, the flow meter, uh, moved from the admixture delivery system going directly into a header going over the mixer and I got a delivery from 30 up to 60 pounds a minute. That then gave us a much better cycle time. And I moved on to other things that I thought were holding us up. So what you do is you just keep on saying, what's the biggest holdup and what you could come up with as an ideal cycle time. Next thing we looked at was cement delivery. Uh, the screw auger delivered at X rate. The butterfly valves opened up uh, with different sequencing off the batch plant computer. It became a daily plan for me. I started my career as a bench chemist. And so I would plan my work by morning and perform my lab bench work in the afternoon. It was really the same thing. I would look at it at the end of the day. What do I want to work on tomorrow? Sit at my desk, figure out how I was going to do that. And then once batch time started, out I'd be working on the equipment, working on the computer. So through lots of different changes to our cement delivery system, we got cement to the way hopper quicker. Our, our scale was holding us up, waiting for us to give us a good signal. So I improved how quickly we got to an accurate number off of our scale. And then I had to get it out of the way hopper. So that was a lot of changes. Um, uh, there was no vibration on the way hopper. I added vibration. Tried centrifugal, tried piston, um, high amplitude, low amplitude, little air, lots of air. By trial and error, I got material to fall so quickly out of the way hopper, it would bog down the mixer. Okay, now what am I going to do to stop bogging down the mixer? On to another sequencing. How do I do that? So got into the batch plant computer and took a look at how cement dropped. It went from dropping too slow to dropping too fast. So I changed it into two separate drops through the control parameters. Uh, you pull it up and you say, all right, drop for this many seconds and then pause for five seconds. Now drop for another until it's, it's completely dropped and on and on. So, so Joe, um, so once I was satisfied with dropping the, the cement as fast as I could, then I took a look at aggregate. So we use most of the time three eighths inch pea gravel and concrete sand. And so concrete sand, when it's at the right 
moisture likes to bridge. So once again, I took a look, how do I get sand to drop quicker? So we use clamshells coming off the wayhopper, uh, both um, of, of the aggregate wayhopper. Uh, there was a limit on how far the, the jaws would open. So I changed the limit and got the jaws open wider. The computer lets it drop free fall into the wayhopper until you get to 80% of the desired load. It was taking too long to get there. So I said, all right, I need to get to 80% quicker. So I started again, applying vibrators, different types, different amplitude, different frequency. When do they turn on? When do they turn off? Uh, there's some, there's a, in the computer we use, there's a term they have called jogging. Once 80% is out through the clamshell wide open, then it partially closes. I could define how much it partially closes. And then once you get within, let's say, 7% of your desired load, it goes into a program called jogging, where the jaws literally start chattering to try and get down to that fine number. So I got that aggregate to drop uniformly and quickly, quicker to get it down to the final trim. And so it would lock out quicker, and I was satisfied with that. And we moved on to the next thing. And so it was a continuous process going back and forth, back and forth. It probably took over a year. Now, from the days when we were batching without a computer, and no, no doubt a lot of the improvements is going onto a computer, our original cycle time was eight minutes. We now batch all day, every day, minute and 50 seconds. And that's before I even start talking about what we do with the mix, the mix design and the mixing process. That's great, Greg. Uh, that's really interesting. And, and that actually segues really well into my next question, which is about optimizing mixing time. And I know you relayed a story to me recently about that, and I'd just like you to share it with the crowd. Yeah, well, thank you. So it goes hand in hand with your batch plan equipment. You've got a mixer, you've got a mix design, and together they have to marry to give you cycle times that, that are what you want to keep your plant moving, people not waiting on concrete. So for us, I'll, I'll say it again, we don't have silos available to us for supplemental cementitious materials. And even if we did, I don't know that we would use them because we, we only have type F fly ash with very high organic content. Uh, we're not interested in the type of concrete it produces. So we're doing a strict Portland cement type concrete and 90% of what we do is SEC. So uh, what I'm about to describe is all about getting our SEC mixed where it needs to be within the mixer. Um, so if you remember, I was talking about how we got cement to drop so fast it would bog down the mixer. So uh, uh, I was able to go back into the computer and get the water sequence to happen right when the aggregates drop into the mixer, right at the beginning of the mixing sequence. Because we were waiting on water, I got water in there quicker, and then early on, drop the cement and wait for it to wet out. Well, I got together with our admixture supplier, and I told him what I was trying to do. He said, what, what super plasticizer are you using? I told him the one, he said, well, we've got the next generation of what you're using, and what it's known for is faster wet out time. So I said, bring it in. Let's run trials. We brought it in. It went out so much quicker. And so it was a great improvement just by tying in with the resources that are available to us here at Gaines. So even though I'm an ex-admixture guy, I still tie into the admixture company's resources. I don't know whether the people listening today realize it. You have your local admixture representative, but all these admixture companies have also precast specialists. He's on my speed dial. 
So even though I think I know, I'm not part of that industry anymore. So I don't know what the latest and greatest is. So I encourage you to bring your admixture specialists in at least once a year. Talk about your mix. Talk about what chemicals you're using. Talk about what different things you're trying to achieve and let them help you. So we switched over to an admixture that gave us much better wet out time. And so through that, that then gave us other things that are holding us up. I was waiting on the moisture probes to give us the water in the trim water. So I don't want to get into some long conversation about moisture probes. Part of NPCA plant certification requires that you have a moisture probe for your coarse aggregate and your fine aggregate. And we certainly do that. And we calibrate them weekly and we report them. But what I want is a very fast, quick idea on how much water we need to achieve the mix we're trying to design. So most of these batch plant computers come with either an ammeter or a watt meter that's measuring how hard that mixer motor is working. You can tie in that watt reading or that amp reading to what's going on downstairs in your QC lab on wet testing. So for us, we're doing SCC to a 26 inch spread. That 26 inch spread through experience tells us it's a 0.4 water cement ratio at 6,000 PSI at 28 days. And we know our target to hit that with 1.75 cubic yards, which is what we make, is 1530 on the watt meter. So our batch plant operator, while it's letting the computer do its thing, it's doing it, we're doing our final trim, hitting that 1530. The first batch will go slowly and then it'll know trim water is three gallons, two gallons, minus one gallon. He puts that on and he starts running and we hit that watt number every day or for the rest of our batches. And we know that's calibrating to the right slump three guys on the floor. Greg, let's talk a little bit about uh, some admixture work that you've done there. And uh, especially when it came to rapid slump loss and what you went about and did to uh, stop that. Yeah, well, thank you, Joe. So usually when you fix one thing, you hurt another. Uh, I think of chemistry as a as uh, two strings and you pull on one to get a better property, the other one's backing off. So when we use the faster wet out time super plasticizer, then we started noticing in the bucket out on the plant floor, we were getting slope loss fairly quickly. Back to the admixture precast specialist, uh, we, we decided to introduce low dosages of a set retarder, not to get set retardation, just to stop the slope loss. So in my mind, your cycle time doesn't end when it drops out of the mixer. It also matters how that bucket survives from the time it hits the bucket to the time it's out, it's, it's, it's empty out on the, on, the, uh, on the production floor. So make sure what you're doing up top uh, is acceptable for the entire time that bucket is being used. You came from QC, and uh, one of the things that I've talked to some some people at our uh, our membership is about continuous feedback and and you know keeping keeping the process going. Uh, what are your thoughts along that line? Well, so of course we're recording everything to comply with NPCA plant certification, but I want our QC testing to come alive and make it integral to what's going on in the batch plant. So while we're focused on making good concrete as quickly as we can, uh, we need to know immediately if there's anything going awry. So on the first batch of each mix each day, I'm sure most plants do this, we do wet testing. So we test for you know many things, but the three key things that I watch are, uh, are air content, slump, and unit weight. 
So as soon as we get the slump and the air reading, that gets conveyed back to the batch plant operator. My view on SCC and avoiding the most common problem, which is segregation, most specs for air is between 2 and 7%. I want to make that much tighter. I believe that if you're doing a true SCC like we are with 26-inch spread, if you get below 5%, you're likely to start segregating. Now, let me explain that a little bit. So what you have to realize with SEC, it's all about your fines in the mix. Fines are obviously the cement or other supplemental cementitious materials, but it's also your water and your air content. And the rule of thumb is those three components should make up around 10 cubic feet per yard. And I hope everybody writes that down and takes use of that. So the one that really is going to vary if you're really controlling water-cement ratio is your air content. So it's an easy thing on a daily basis to change the dosage of your air based on temperature of the day. That changes. We don't wait till it gets down to the 3% level. Anything below 5, we're shooting to keep it between 5 and 7. As far as the slump, that's an immediate daily validation that our watt meter target is right on for our slump target. So don't just write that in the book so that you're compliant. Send that straight back up to the operator and let them act on it. Hey, Greg, this has been a lot of really good information. Um, let's say we have a manufacturer who either just took over a plant or, you know, just started there and is really starting in the beginning of stages of thinking and raising his or her mixed design efficiency. You can't do everything all at once. You can't get to where you are, you know, in the first six months. Where do you suggest they start? Where do you think the best places to focus early on is? Uh, well, for me, it, it, I kind of think practically in times of time frame, it was just, it, was, it wasn't like I had this big plan. I just went out there and I said, well, I want things to go quicker. What's the biggest thing holding me up? What's bothering me the most? It was the water delivery. So I started there and, you know, we're all busy and I was busy at the time, but I said, I'm going to make this a routine and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle this mountain one bite at a time dedicating a half an hour in the morning to decide what to do half an hour in the afternoon looking at it. So you got to, you got to tackle it in small bites. You can't accomplish it all. And it should come naturally to you. Um, people here at Gainey's will tell you, they'll see me just standing there watching. So before I do anything, I like to watch to try and understand what's going on and then start scratching my head and saying, why is it doing that? How could I make that better? And so Start at the beginning. What's the what's the thing not going well at all, and take it piece by piece. That sounds fantastic. That's really good advice. Greg Roach from Gainey's down in Louisiana. Thank you for being with us here today on Breaking the Mold. This is Joe Frollo, and we'll be right back. Come join us as we head to the beach to celebrate another great year for Precast Concrete. The NPCA 57th Annual Convention is November 3rd through the 5th at Ami Amelia Island Resort, just outside of Jacksonville, Florida. Registration is underway, so be sure to book your room and sign up for all the special events in the works, including the annual business meeting breakfast, the leadership awards luncheon, the keynote luncheon with guest speaker Scott Rasmussen, the NPCA Foundation Golf Fundraiser, a tour of nearby gate precast, a variety of sightseeing tours, and the beachfront closing celebration. You can access all of this information and register now at precast.org slash convention. Don't wait, 
Sign up today. I am Daryl Burns with NPCA, and I am the Director of Codes and Standards. Today I'm talking with Mr. Paul Ramsberg, District Manager from Sika Corporation. Welcome, Paul, and it's so great to talk with you today. Thanks, Daryl. I'm looking forward to it. Hey, Paul, let's hypothetically say that I decided to start my own precasting company and find that my mix breaks strengths are coming out low, lower than I would like. What, what would you suggest to me? We need to look at a couple things here. When we say low strength, we might mean uh, various different things. Do we mean low early strength? Perhaps we mean low 28-day strength, or maybe we mean, mean both. And uh, what we would do with our mix design depends on um, when we're getting that low strength. For instance, if our strengths are low at one day when we're trying to strip our products, often this can be impacted by the temperature of our concrete, ambient temperature. The colder it is outside, the lower our early breaks will be. It also could be impacted by um, some of our materials, cementitious materials. Um, perhaps we're using a high fly ash content, uh, especially in the colder weather, that's going to lower my early strengths. And a big impactor to early strengths is water-cement ratio. That's the ratio between pounds of water and pounds of cement in our mix design. And the higher that water-cement ratio is, the lower our early strengths going to be. But if we're talking about 28-day strengths, some of those things still apply. But also, in addition, we need to look out for burnout. Burnout's a slang term, but what it refers to is when we get our concrete too hot too fast and it stops gaining compressive strength. So maybe we get a very high early strength, but don't really get anything else, even up to 28 days. Um, and then another thing to look out for is the test cylinders themselves. Are we making the cylinders according to the ASTM standard? Are we storing and curing them according to ASTM standards? You know, there's nothing you can do to that cylinder to make it break higher than it really is, but there's a lot of things you can do wrong with your testing specimens to make them break unrealistically low. So we know our cylinders are being made and processed correctly, and we need to look at mostly um, temperature. Is there some variation in our materials, and are we maintaining a proper water spent ratio? So what, what would be the first thing that you would have me take a look at specifically? Would you have me look at my water cement ratio, say my early strengths were low? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, we've known for a long time that water cement ratio is the biggest impactor to early strength, to 28-day strength too, but the biggest impactor to early strength. So uh, it's the obvious first choice of things to look at. Uh, is there some kind of hidden water... Um, that we're not seeing on the batch ticket getting into the mix. Um, our moisture is correct. There's a lot of ways that extra water can get in, and we, that's the first thing to look at. Make sure we're not adding extra water that shouldn't be in there. And maybe a good second thing is to look at aggregate. And that might not seem um, completely obvious to everyone, but think about this. Aggregate makes up about 75% of the mass of concrete. It's the biggest... Um, impactor of all the other materials besides water. So what are we looking at aggregate? Well, is there a change to our gradation? Sometimes if our gradation becomes more gap graded or, or unevenly graded, uh, this will lower our strength. 
Is the aggregate dirty? This applies to sand and stone both. If we see a lot of dirt or silt um, on our aggregate, uh, this will lower our compressive strengths. Uh, also, is there clay or even organic impurities in our aggregate? Um, this can also lower compressive strength. So first thing to look at is water. Second thing to look at is some variation in our sand and stone. So Paul, when I make some changes to my mix design and change my water cement ratio, is that gonna affect greatly the workability? It can. We think about taking water out or reducing water means reducing slump. And that was true pre-1980. But since the 1980s, we've had super plasticizers available. Um, and most of these were, were used very early in the precast industry. Uh, and now we have about a fourth generation super plasticizers made of the polycarboxylate molecule. They're very predictable. And we can gain um, workability or at least maintain our workability even if we're lowering our water to um, extremely low water cement ratios. So it's possible to lower that water or maintain a low water cement ratio without losing workability. What does that mean though? That means maybe when it gets really hot outside and our water demand increases to our mix um, because of the temperature that we might have to use a little more water reducer um, in the mix than we would in the winter. So that's going to vary somewhat if we keep our water cement ratio fixed, you know, then we could see some variability in our admix pieces. Now, how does the water uh, reducer, how does that actually work? You know, that's interesting. It's, it's one of the few uh, magic tricks left in the science of concrete. Um, like everything in nature, cement particles are both positive and negative charge, you know, electric magnetic charge. And uh, we know as kids, we played around with magnets and the magnets would stick together. That's because they had opposite polarity, right? Positive and negative polarity would stick together. But uh, also we remember if you flipped one magnet over, you could chase a magnet around the table with an additional one um, if they both had the same polarity. And that's what happens with a water reducer. They change all the polarities of the cement particles to negative once they attach themselves to the cement particle. So now each particle is pushing away from every other particle, trying to escape each other. That's one way, electrostatic dispersion. And then the other is steric hindrance. And that just simply means that the polygabosylate molecules, the water-reducing molecules are so large, they prevent the cement particles from touching each other. There's like a spacer in between them. And this allows the, the microscopic level of concrete it allows it to flow over each other, all these particles. It reduces what's called yield stress. That's the friction caused by particles rubbing against each other in the flowing concrete. So because of electrostatic dispersion and steric hindrance, the yield stress is reduced and we get flow. That's how we get flow. And everyone who's worked in a concrete plant and placed concrete, they use these slang terms that have been around the industry a long time. Um, they could tell the difference between water wet and chemical wet. That's what they'll call it. Um, now visualize that when we just add extra water to a mix design, it gets really sloppy. It splashes. Uh, the stone seems to settle out and segregate. Uh, not what we want. That's not quality concrete. But when we add the super plasticizer, we can get you know high fluidity, flowing almost like water, uh, but it remains thixotropic. It remains thick. Um, it has a high viscosity. It doesn't splash. It doesn't separate out. And that's uh, what the guys who place concrete tend to call chemical wet. But uh, if this way, we get high flowability without reducing the quality of the concrete. 
Paul, is that a way to reduce the an SEC concrete to reduce um, VSI three, where it's showing like a lot of bleed water around the spread test from ASTM sixteen eleven, adding this super plasticizer? Yeah, so if you're if you're testing the VSI, you're already adding super plasticizer to your mix. Um, if you're getting that kind of sloppy flow, it's because the water is too high. So one way to address that is to reduce the water cement ratio, the amount of water per yard. And then if you're not getting the flow you want, then increase the super plasticizer. So it's the issue of uh, increasing super, increasing chemical, and lowering water will make the concrete much more thick, much more viscous. And then your VSI will be something more of a zero or one. So I'm curious, based on your past experience, Paul, I'm sure you get a lot of calls <clears throat> with people either struggling with mix designs or switching to SEC. Is there common mix inefficiencies and methods to remove the inefficiencies? Yeah, actually, it's a great um, question. The first is, is powder, is cement, uh, or cementitious material. That would be Portland cement plus fly ash or slag or any of the other SCMs you might use. And people, when they're first developing an SCC mix, tend to overdo the amount of powder in a, in a yard of concrete. We see uh, maybe their conventional mix had something like 680 pounds of cementitious or 700 pounds of cementitious. And when they go to SCC, they might be eight or 900 pounds of cementitious. And eventually they'll get down to a normal level of cement um, if they keep optimizing their mix, but it's very inefficient just to raise the cement content. Um, you don't need a lot of extra powder, maybe a little, but not a lot of extra powder to get SEC. But the other area of inefficiency I think is greater is the fact that people automatically start with a 50% sand, 50% stone aggregate combination in their SEC mix, half sand, half stone. This is extremely inefficient. Um, they think they need the high sand content to give extra fines for flow. Um, in reality, what you need is a finer sand and less of it. Um, the real high 50% sand content mixes will uh, have more potential for shrinkage and cracking. They'll have a lot lower compressive strength, both early and 28-day compressive strength because of the extra surface area of that aggregate. They have more... Um, variability in flow because the biggest impactor to slump variability is moisture content and your sand has the biggest moisture content, has the most amount that's going into your mix, but also has the most variability in moisture content. Um, it's much better to maybe slightly increase the sand content. Maybe your sandstone ratio to start a mix would be something like uh, 58% stone, right? 42% sand. Uh, that'd be a better place to start than a 50-50 sandstone mix. But those high sand mixes, often they're the culprits of bug holes. People struggle with an SC, high flow SCC mix that still gives them bug holes. Often that's because of the high sand mix. How does this compare to what ACI recommends, how you develop a mix design? I think it's interesting an, an ACI 211 is for conventional concrete. Um, you can start you can start developing a mix there and then optimize it. ACI has some direction on SCC mix designs, but in reality it comes down to um, trial and error a lot of it and uh, and often what's typical in your area. So you may need to get involved with uh, your 
admixture or your aggregate or your cement salesman, people in your industry that have developed these mixes before. But uh, an SEC mix likely is going to have a slightly higher powder content than a conventional mix. Maybe a little more sand content, but it doesn't always have to be. Very frequently it's conventional sand content. But I often see them have lower water cement ratios than conventional mixes, which is why we see such great opportunity for early breaks and precast with SEC. So as far as steps go, Paul, it sounds like you would create your mix design based on ACI 211 and then <clears throat> see where you're at, develop some statistical data, and then contact um, uh, one of the admix suppliers uh, to discuss, like, how do you fine-tune it from there? Yeah. In fact, you can start with 211. With, you know, 211 will tell you the percentage of stone to start with a mix. You can develop a 211 mix and then just automatically know you're going to have to have a slightly lower stone content. But uh, that's where you can get the advice from people in your area that have developed SEC mixes before. And I keep mentioning about people in your area. Your concrete, at, all concrete at best, is a local material, but specifically SEC. You wouldn't believe how many times I see companies with plants in Florida and plants somewhere else in the United States, you know, maybe in New England and then also in Texas, and they always are going back and forth about their mix designs and why doesn't this mix work at that plant. Um, you know, the, the limestone you have in Florida is not going to flow the same as the granite you have in New England, or even the limestone in Texas is going to be different than Florida limestone. So you can't really just pull up a mix from one part of the country, move it to another. There's radiological properties of all your components, your mix, and they're going to be very different. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, you definitely want to get the local people who have experience in SEC in your area, which tend to be your local sales guys for your materials, and get their advice on optimizing that SEC mix. That's really great information, Paul. So, basically, it's not like making uh, chocolate chip cookies across the country where you can make them fairly the same. Uh, concrete has it's different across the country due to aggregates and, you know, environment. Some of us are in warmer and cooler climates. Yeah, you know, and take, for instance, the, the example of Florida again. Florida's concrete is so much uh, more unusual than a lot of the rest of the country. But their limestone is very light. And uh, I worked with a producer that was right on the Georgia-Florida border. And when he did Florida DOT work, Florida made them use Florida rock, limestone. And when he did Georgia DOT work, they made them use granite from Georgia. He had the exact same SCC mix, same water cement ratio, same powder, same admixture, same water. Everything was identical, except he swapped the rock um, depending on what state he was working with. And uh, with the Florida limestone, he was getting a 30-inch flow on SCC, which is very high. And then he would just swap it out with a granite from Georgia, which has a lower water demand, but he was only getting a 24-inch flow. Now, the paste was the same one either. If you sieved out the rock, the paste would give you the same flow. Is just, it's a lot easier to move a light limestone, lighter in weight, than it was the heavier, denser granite. So uh, if we're, often if we're targeting something like a flow or a viscosity number, you know, all the materials in your area are going to impact that number. So yeah, they're not transplantable. So if somebody has precast plants across the country, it's in them sharing information with each other regarding mixed designs it's only going to get them a starting point and then they're going to have to work with efficiencies from there. I was kind of curious of how important is it to 
do your ASTM testing and do it the same every time? Yeah, consistency in testing is extremely important. Um, following the ASTM standard, there are well-established ASTM standards for, for SEC, um, for all of our concrete um, testing, slumps and airs and unit weights. It's very important to follow that consistently. Now, some places, a DOT requires a little bit different testing than the established ASTM or even the established requirements of our you know, NPCA or other agency. There are times and places to test differently than ASTM, but the important part is consistency, always testing consistently. The slump flow test method offers the uh, procedure A, procedure B. A uh, plant needs to pick one of those and stick with it. That's whether the slump cone's inverted or it's upright, but you determine which is best for you. The ASTM allows for either, but then everything you test from that point forward should be that same consistent method. And uh, you know, that's true in a lot of tests for ASTM. So once again, consistency is, is the most important part. Sometimes we run into tests that, that don't have an ASTM standard, like the L-box or U-box in the world of SCC, or you know, there's other um, absorption tests which aren't ASTM standard tests. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't run them. There's tests out there that are valid but just haven't got ASTM standards yet. Um, but once again, the key there is consistency of performing the test. Well, I recently saw somebody that switched over to SEC and they they were doing unit weight and air testing and they were rotting the concrete and then tapping the side of the container with a rubber mallet. I'm assuming that will cause some issues. Do you know what issues that would cause with the test? Uh, yeah. So, you know, the standard, ASTM standard, once again, says when you fill a container, you don't, you don't fill it in layers, you don't rot it, you don't tap it. That's the proper way to conduct any of these ASTM standardized tests with self-consolidating concrete. But, you know, some people are still doing that to some extent. Now, what negativity can we see there? Um, Either it will reflect the fact that you're maybe maybe you are not consolidating your product, but now you are consolidating the air test. So you're going to get a different air result than your actual product. But probably worse than that is um, you know air enters our concrete through dynamic energy, right? The air entrainment agent, the chemical you put in your concrete, that doesn't create air. All that does is encapsulate existing air and stabilizes the bubbles the small one micron size bubbles. Um, but the air itself gets in there through dynamic energy, whether it's the mixer or even a delivery system or when the concrete drops from a bucket into the form at extreme drop height, that's all in generating and trapped air. Um, but also rotting and tapping could potentially generate air in an SCC mix that wouldn't necessarily be there otherwise. So you could be creating a false high air content by doing that with the pressure meter system. Yeah, that explains why their air was running at 7 8%. That seemed a little high to me. Yeah, for sure. So, Paul, in your years of experience at SICA, do you have any rules of thumb you could share with, say, traditional mix design ratios and then also SEC mix design ratios? With traditional mix design, we always start with the ACI 211 mix design, but that's never the mix we want to use in our plant. It's a good starting point, but uh, we want to always optimize going forward. And we optimize by collecting our test data and developing a standard deviation, so the standard deviation of our compressive strength. 
and there's plenty of documentation and NPCA um, publications on how to calculate standard deviation. I would certainly recommend doing that because that's how we optimize our mix to the proper um, compressive strands um, and proper flow even with, as we optimize. Um, as far as rules of thumb, on conventional mixes, they're fairly standard, but I, I think there are localized rules of thumb in certain places. Um, and once again, it'd be, it'd be up to talking to your local mix design guru in your area, whether that's a material supplier or someone you trust within your organization to figure out how mixes are typically done in your area. With SEC, um, my rules of thumb are usually start with um, about 58% compressive stone. That's actually where I start with my mix. And I look for a well-graded aggregate. Um, we often pick the cheapest aggregate. And the cheapest aggregate can be gap-graded. And uh, the problem with that, well, what is gap-graded aggregate? Let's start there. Um, if we think of the sieve analysis we get from QC, when we use our shaker to grade out our aggregate, we might have a, a lot on the 3-8 sieve and a lot of sand on the number you know, 50 sieve and maybe nothing in between when we looked at our combined gradation. And that's gap graded, it's gap. Uh, there's a lot on a few um, sieves. We want even graded aggregate where there's a evenly graded across each sieve and that's gonna give us our best flow. Um, so my rule of thumb or my, I guess my mantra I like to tell people is sometimes spending $2 extra per ton on a very nice, well-graded sand or stone can save you $5 a yard on your concrete. Um, often uh, we like to pick the cheapest rock, but rock isn't just an inert material we put in our mix. It inter interacts physically and even chemically with our concrete. So we wanna get the one that fits perfectly, that the gradation works very well. The finest modulus of sand is nice and moderate right in the middle, something like a, um, 2.5 to 2.7 on fineness modulus. And those are, tend to be the more expensive aggregate. But as a rule of thumb, the more expensive aggregate mean cheaper cost per yard because by getting a good aggregate that flows well, we can use less powder. So it's less cement, less water too, and less chemical admixtures because of that. So often we can have a nice optimized, fairly inexpensive mix by uh, spending a little bit more upfront on good aggregate. Another thing to be aware of is uh, the ever-growing concerns about sustainability. And the concrete industry has made great strides in, in becoming more environmentally responsible with uh, carbon capture. But one of the newer systems that uh, people are becoming aware of are EPDs, it's Environmental uh, Product Declarations. What is an EPD? It's a lot like that nutrient guide you see on the packaging on food, where it tells you, how many calories are in it and how much of each different type of you know, sodium or, or sugar is in that, what percentage of daily intake. EPD works the same, um, not just for carbon, but all, all things that environmentalists might be concerned about. And uh, we can uh, generate that for our product, but what affects the EPD? What affects uh, whether we're environmentally responsible or not? Well, one way to, to get a good EPD result or to make environmental mix is to lower our Portland cement content. Because most of the carbon generated by concrete is generated in the processing of Portland cement. And we can do that by embracing a type 1L or you know, Portland limestone cements become very popular.
this lowers carbon content by using them. We can use the highest possible replacement of fly ash or slag that, uh, that we're able to use. We can lower our water cement ratio by using a high range water reducer, uh, super plasticizer. Um, the lower we lower our water cement ratio, the more cement we can pull out of a mix. And then also we want to be concerned about our aggregate too by selecting aggregate that are nearby to us that are close. And uh, by selecting close aggregate, we reduce the carbon generated by fuel to deliver the aggregate to our plants. But uh, I just wanted to give everyone kind of a indication if you see a requirement for EPDs, what kind of things you can do in a precast plant to affect that. Yeah, thanks for that information, Paul. So have you seen any issues with folks submit switching to type 1L? Have they had any um, workability, any strength issues, early strength, mid-strength, late strength? What have you guys seen? So type 1Ls or Portland limestone cements are very unique from one another. Um, it depends both, both on the cement we're starting with, but also on the limestone source that the cement producers inner grinding. And uh, typically what we see on the market is equal 28-day strengths. Um, we see equal workability to other type 1s. So there is a workability difference between a type 3 and a type 1 because of particle size. You know, the finer particle size of a type 3 is going to give you a little better flow. Um, but a type 1 has a little lower water demand, but maybe a little less flow. But if you're comparing a type 1 to a Portland limestone cement 1L, there's going to be very little difference where you might see some differences in very early compressive strength. So if we're talking about 16 hour compressive strength, you're probably not gonna see a difference. But if your plant's looking at double pouring and they're doing five or six hour compressive strengths or even a 10 or 12 hour compressive strength comparison, you're probably gonna see a reduction in strength at those ages. So the biggest issue could be those plants that are trying to double pour every during the day. That's right. Um, but it's important to embrace the Portland limestone cements wherever possible. You know, they're coming and they're going to be the dominant cement in the United States in, in a very short period of time. Most producers, most cement producers are even looking at type three versions of Portland limestone cements. Um, for those people who don't architectural concrete, there are cement producers looking at uh, white cement, Portland limestone cement versions. So it's something to embrace, not to try and get away from, to see how it works in your facility and how you can adjust your mixes to compensate for any early strength issues. Yeah, I think it would be important for producers to get ahead of the curve on that one. We've been talking to cement suppliers across the country, and uh, in some areas they've just they've already switched, and you cannot get anything but type 1 out. Yeah, it's going to be one of those things we can't escape or avoid, so we might as well lean in and be early adapters. I agree. Well, thank you, Paul, for joining us today on the podcast. It was great talking with you, and we uh, really enjoy getting to hear about mixed design efficiencies and you know learn from all your knowledge at uh, your career at SECA. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys about concrete. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Breaking the Mold. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast at Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. 
You also can help us extend our reach by sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. Until next time, this is Joe Frollo. Thanks for joining us.